You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thanks, Mari. Um, today's Bible reading comes from Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, 17 through to 3, 13. If you'd like to follow along, it's on the welcome card and behind me as well. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in in God's uh, service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought the good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you, for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Adam, if I haven't met you before, uh, rest assured for anyone who is devoutly Republican, that is the last you'll see of the Queen, uh, probably because she's no longer with us, um, and probably because this is actually not a talk about her um, as we look through 1 Thessalonians together. I don't know how many of you are familiar with ancient Roman poetry. I admittedly am not, um, but some of you might be familiar with the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Now, I'm familiar with that saying, and because I'm committed to sourcing these sayings, I trusted Google, and Google told me that that came from the ancient Roman poet Sextus Aurelius Popertius. Now, I'll leave you to fact-check me on that particular quote, Uh, but needless to say, we all sometimes are away from people that we love. We long to be with them again, don't we? We long to see them again. The reason for separation could be any number of reasons. It could be work or study or travel. But it could be something sadder. The reason for separation could be a broken relationship. It could be ill health or even death. 
Yes, in one way or another, I suspect we all have experienced an absence, an absence that makes our heart long for and did our love grow for the person that we miss? Let me give you a couple of examples from my own life. As a part of my work, I have to travel interstate. And I can assure you, it sounds great, but the shine wears off pretty much after the first time. And I found the more I've had to travel, the more I've missed uh, my wife Erin and then the kids as they have come along in turn. More and more. My heart grew in fondness for them because I didn't see them as much as I wanted to. Does that resonate for you? Does that sound in any way similar for you? You might not travel for work, but maybe there's someone who you will never see again now. Or maybe someone's moved away. Maybe you've had to move away for your university study or work. And maybe because of that, you miss someone. I think we'd all agree that absence does make the heart grow fonder. But, but how do we deal with this feeling? If I had my time again, I would have just said, Alicia said it and I didn't have to say anything more. But unfortunately, um, I didn't think of that until now. So that means we're going to work through this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. Because I think it, Paul shares the Roman poet's sentiment. Paul, who'd just been with the Thessalonians, is expressing how he feels for them now that they're separated, how he longs to be with the people of the Thessalonian church, a people of faith, a people that love, a people of hope, a people that are seeking to live as Christians. In fact, a people just like you and I, a people just like us. And as uh, Yvette read, you would have heard Paul's longing for the absence to be over so that they can be reunited again. But in the meantime, Paul is left to write to them and write of faith, hope and love to encourage them in the Christian life. For Paul, living as a Christian means loving and encouraging people. That's right, people, it's kind of funny. People are kind of hard to love, and yet that's what Paul says. And perhaps it's no surprise that he writes elsewhere of faith, hope and love. And that's exactly what we see here. The key to living as a Christian is faith, hope and love. So before we go any further, and on that note, why don't we pray? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, the author and perfecter of our faith, the giver of hope, the one who shows us what love is, Lord, please give us ears to hear that we might understand hearts to, to know more as your spirit speaks to us so that we might consider your word, that we might grow in our faith, rejoice in our hope and be overflowing in our love. Lord God, may you be glorified through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Faith, hope and love. Now, I want to take you through this passage, and I just want to highlight four things, which they are on the Connect card. I can assure you of that, thanks to Zoe, um, for getting that done. 
But we see, if you look at the Connect card, that there are really four things that help us understand faith, hope, and love. And in the first couple of verses, we see Paul's deep love for the Thessalonians despite Satan keeping them apart. Then we see Paul's desperate hope for the Thessalonians is that they'd stand firm despite Satan's testing their faith through persecution. Thirdly, we see Paul's overwhelming joy about hearing of their faith and love. And fourthly, Paul's prayer for greater love and encouragement by the Thessalonians for others, love for others, as they look with hope to when Jesus returns. So why don't we turn now back to the passage as we think about Paul's deep love for the Thessalonians. In verse 17, Paul says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Now, right from the beginning, I'm, I'm really hit by Paul's passionate description of his relationship to his brothers and sisters in Christ at the church. In verse 17 that we just read, we see Paul describes himself as being orphaned. So disjointed was his unceremonious exit and journey to Berea, so dislocating that Paul described it as being orphaned, not merely being alone, but being without his family, as if... He never knew who they were, almost as if they were dead. Wow, just wow. So great is Paul's love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, these new Gentile Christians, that to be part of for them, it's like he's lost someone close to him. That's how deep his love is for them, and that's why he's so desperate to return to them. Now, I genuinely can't imagine what this feels like. Uh, on the, I, I did think about the closest time I felt being orphaned, and the flashback was when I was four years old and lost my favourite teddy bear. So I don't really think that's all that helpful. It was a dearly loved teddy bear, I can assure you. But I thought maybe it's more akin to uh, the recent grief over losing my dad. Um, the love that welled up from me from his sudden death. And the realisation that I wouldn't see him again in this life. I didn't see it coming. I didn't expect it or ask for it. Maybe that's a way to try and understand this. Or maybe it was even a loss of friends from the family here that I never anticipated would happen. You see, what I love about Paul is his longing shows us that his love for them is deeply personal and real, and it's couched in reality. Paul's love and desire to be reunited with the church was only heightened when he couldn't get back to them, when his path had been blocked. That's where, that's where he goes in verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Paul's return was blocked by Satan. Now, as I read this, I want to be a little careful because part of me wants to say, Paul, that's not possible. Like God's sovereign over everything. Uh, Satan has no power. His power was defeated by Christ on the cross. And when he died, when Christ died for our sin, that's it. How can this possibly be? 
And I don't think Paul would necessarily disagree with what I've just said. But as he does in Ephesians, we'd be, he's simply acknowledging the fact that even though Satan was defeated and his power was defeated at the cross, he's not without any influence. In Ephesians, he calls him the prince of the kingdom of the air. He still has power over this world. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with things that happen in our life that appear to prevent us from seeking or maybe following and serving the Lord Jesus? That could be even things so subtle as family, not, not supporting what we do or agreeing what we do. Well, I don't think it's saying that Satan is in control. Absolutely not. And it's not that Satan is more powerful than God. Absolutely not. But Satan is doing his bidding because he's trying to actually stop people from following Jesus. He has some leftover power that means he gets in the way. He's deliberately trying to stop people living and loving like Jesus did. And so what this means for us is that we shouldn't be surprised. We should be alert but not alarmed the presence of Satan in this world. Particularly from time to time, if we find us following Jesus is hard and that potentially there could be stumbling blocks that have been put in the way by Satan. Now that being said, I'm not going to overstate Satan's influence, but I also don't want to downplay it as well. Now let's be honest. In reality... The people of God are and will be separated from each other. But what remains critical, as we are aware of Satan's influence, is that in the midst of everything, in the midst of this separation, we know that God remains in control. God is sovereign over everything and everyone. Following Jesus is hard. But there's more to it than this, and that's where Paul takes us next. Because Paul models love and encouragement by being real about potentially why he's been separated from them. He's not trying to hide the fact of what's stopping him, in part because he doesn't want to give them a reason to lose hope. For what is our hope, it says in verse 19, our joy, our crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. What gives Paul hope? That his ministry is not in vain. What gives him joy, a contentment, a peace in the face of Satan seemingly blocking his ministry? What does he look forward to when the Lord Jesus returns? It's actually his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not himself, it's, it's people, it's, it's other people, it's not Paul. Because in seeing his brothers and sisters and hearing about that from Timothy, which we'll come to shortly, he knows that what matters most are that people are living as Christians and loving others in response to the gospel that they have heard. He looks at his brothers and sisters with an internal perspective, not a temporal one. 
this is actually really challenging. When was the last time you looked at your brothers and sisters of Christ here with an eternal perspective? And do you see your life as giving encouragement to the people who pastor you? Do you see that you can actually be encouraged by the perseverance of others, like our missionaries that we support? Or more personally, do you even know the people who you sit with at church to begin with, to be encouraged by them? Do you know them enough to share the gospel and life with them, as we heard last week? Perhaps for each one of us today, myself included, our prayer might be that we would have a heart like Paul, to see people and love people as Paul does, to be encouraged by people but to encourage people as Paul does. See, Paul's love and encouragement is other person-centred and it seeks the good of the others first. It seeks to give them hope. But Paul doesn't stop there. No, his love for his brother and sister means that Paul stops at nothing to make sure they are encouraged to stand firm. And this is our second point. Let's read from chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens and we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. Encouragement in the Christian life for Paul is one done in person. So we should think about carefully when we're tempted to be absent from encouraging one another, absent from meeting together. We should be careful when we think to engage with people on, in written word as opposed to in person. See, as Paul does here and demonstrates here, encouragement really should be done in person but not just personally, with humility. I mean, look at Paul. He doesn't go telling the Thessalonians that he's sending his junior compatriot along to encourage them. It's not like me telling a client, oh, I'm sending my graduate lawyer along because, hey, I'm too busy and special. No, I wouldn't do that, probably because I'd lose the client, but I don't need to do that. No, no, what, what's Paul on about here? What he's on about is encouraging others. And that comes from a place of humility. Now, he doesn't send his compatriot, he sends his co-worker. It is done with humility. But encouragement isn't just personal and humble, it also has purpose. And we see this in verse 2. See, the purpose of Timothy is to strengthen and encourage the church in its faith. And purposefulness changes how we relate to one another. It changes what we think about and what we talk about. It changes what we care about and what we care for. And this purpleness comes from being gospel-centred. And it's gospel-centred so that the church can last the journey. 
Now, I was going to drop gospel-centred in a lot in the rest of my talk, and I realised I need to explain probably what I mean by that. Um, what I mean very briefly is that actually the framework from which you think about things, you think about life, that you make decisions, is actually centred on your understanding of Jesus' saving work on the cross, about the gracious act of love that you've been given by grace in return for nothing that you could do. The forgiveness that you're shown, not because of who you are, but by how loving and great our God is. The mercy that you experience at the cross. That type of gospel framework changes how you relate to others and what you say to others, what you think about others and how you behave with others. Because ultimately you're reflecting your understanding of Jesus' love for you in how you relate to others. Now that's what I mean by a gospel-centred framework. There's more depth to be plunged at another time. I accept that. But just have that in the back of your mind as we keep going through this. For when we think about the church in Thessalonica, it was predominantly Gentile. And the gospel was actually really new to them. So it was really important that when Paul went to encourage them, he modelled what encouragement should look like. It was personable, it was honest, it was purposeful, it was gospel-centred, and finally, yeah, as I said, it was honest. Uh, Paul doesn't sugarcoat the truth about being a Christian because he wants them to know what it's really like to be a Christian, the good times and the bad the hard stuff, the tricky stuff, the complicated stuff, but also the great and glorious stuff. That's why he says that challenges will come. He doesn't shy away from that. And we should be thankful that he doesn't. Because let's be honest, for these guys, they were facing real challenges. They were a new church of Gentiles being persecuted physically persecuted for following Jesus. That's not something that you and I experience every day in the same way. Paul's encouragement through Timothy was to strengthen them in their faith. And I think one practical way that could, it could look like that, and apologies for anyone who is under 25, because I'm about to bitterly screw this up, but it's kind of, it's not saying, love you for that, love that for you. See, I, I, I screwed it. It's actually saying, I love you and my encouragement to you is this. It's so different. And it's such a great way of us thinking through what does it look like? What does a gospel-centric framework look like? So why don't we talk about that a bit more? What does gospel-centered encouragement look like? Well, I think firstly, it looks like understanding the myriad colours of the gospel, understanding what it means, how amazing it is, how fully coloured it is, like a rainbow. But it also means we need to understand what it means meaningfully, which means actually we should be spending time reading God's word. We should be spending time prayerfully reflecting so that the word of God can actually dwell in us richly. 
and enable us to encourage one another. Paul, he longs to be with them again. He's desperate to be with them again. And he sends Timothy so that they're firm, that their faith might be firm. But then as we read on from verse 6, he's actually filled with this overwhelming joy. Joy at the news that Timothy brings. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as you also long, we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul's longing for the Thessalonians was not in vain. For in fact, we see Paul finds encouragement from the news that Timothy brings him. In verse 6, Paul writes of this good news of their faith and love. As Travis reminded us two weeks ago, Paul writes to the Thessalonians about faith, hope and love. And here we see he's doing it again. He's encouraged that in the midst of persecution they've stood firm. Their faith has remained in the saving work of Jesus on the cross and God's love for them. And it is a love, interestingly, that's kind of reciprocal. It's it's a love for their pastors and a love by the pastors for their people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but those people in ministry who give themselves to ministry, both they love us and also they're encouraged by our love for them which means hopefully we we share with them about our walk with the Lord and how that's going. And they share with us the same. So you can see here that this faith not only saves the Thessalonians, it saves them, but it encourages others. Uh, And it encourages others in the midst of persecution. And if ever there was an encouragement for us to think about encouragement, that's a lot of using the words encouragement, It's actually because it helps us collectively, together, work through persecution to keep running the race. And surely that's an encouragement worth sharing. Have you ever thought about your perseverance through strife as a Christian and how that might actually encourage others? I haven't. But it it seems to go without saying that unless you encourage others, unless you share your life with them, it's impossible to see how you'll be encouraged by others and how you'll be an encouragement to others. You know, you can't be encouraged unless you start doing that yourself. And that's kind of challenging if you feel like you're someone who's an introvert, not so extroverted, if you feel like you don't have much of an encouragement to share. Can I remind you of what Travis said a couple of weeks ago? That every story that we have is unique. 
no matter who you are, and sharing your story is a way to encourage one another. Heck, it's how I'm encouraged. I love hearing about people's testimonies. Not just about how they became a Christian, but why you're still a Christian now. I love hearing stories about why people are walking with the Lord, and you should too. It is uniquely your own story to share, but a story about how the Lord Jesus still calls each one of us to follow him, how he does so in the midst of our complicated and challenging lives, and it's something that we can share with others. So when was the last time you shared your unique story of following Jesus with others? When was the last time you encouraged someone else? But hearing of the Thessalonians' faith doesn't stop there, didn't stop there for Paul. How does Paul finally respond? Where does he go to? He goes to the best place to be, and that is prayer. For Paul's urgent prayers are to return to the Thessalonians, these young Christians, so that they can continue to mature, so that he could feel what was lacking. Prayers of thankfulness, but also for understanding the hope that they have in Christ. Verse 11, won't you read with me? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other to everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. You know, Paul's response isn't to say to Christians when they're in strife, hang in there. You'll get through this. No, Paul's response is to pray. Pray even though he's separated from them, he prays. And his prayer is a prayer of encouragement. He prays actually for the sovereign work of the Lord. He prays for love. And he prays that the people of God would endure until the end. Paul prays that they might be encouraged if he was able to return to them, that the Lord would open the way, that even though he is separated, even though he is apart from them, Paul knows that God is still in control and will be the one to make a way for him to return. And so it should really be for us. In the midst of things being out of control, we must always remember that God is still in control. That does not mean that we might know why we are experiencing what we are experiencing. But it should at least make us grateful that someone other is actually working this out for our good and for his glory. But Paul also prays for love, that love would increase and overflow to everyone Now, why don't we stop right there for a moment? Paul is praying for a church that's under pressure. They're being persecuted. They're copying it from every angle. And then he prays that their love would overflow. (laughs) And again, I'm kind of left scratching my head as to why. Why would he be praying for them to have a love like Jesus? 
a love that puts others first. I think it's because Jesus' followers are actually marked by love. People will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And it's a love that comes from being loved first by our creator God. It's a love that comes from someone who knows who we are, who made our inmost being. It's a love that is expressed through our reconciliation to him, a love that promises to make us who we are meant to be, a love that has no ability to earn or is deserving of it. For it's by grace that we receive the love of God into our hearts. It's a love that so changes who we are, a love that is so other person-centred, it turns our world upside down. A love that says to God, not my will, but yours be done. This is the love that marks out a follower of Jesus from anyone else. It's a love that is other person-centred and seeks the good of others. It's a love that is quick to listen and slow to speak. It's a love that humbly repents of sin, no matter the discomfort, without reservation and without the need to justify. It is a love that is quick to forgive rather than hold a grudge or grievance. A love that sacrifices personal desires for justice and judgment that might hold others to ransom to an impossible standard for forgiveness. Because that person knows that the only reason they've been forgiven is because of the love of God that came through Jesus himself dying on the cross in their place and taking the judgment they deserve. It is a love that encourages each other to keep following Jesus every day until he returns. A love that is interested in the needs of others, irrespective of the stage of life, of occupation or location. It is a love that doesn't love that for you, but just simply says, I love you. And this love, friends, which is the Christian story to the world, it isn't just for us. It's also for the people who don't know Jesus. You see, our love, our love for God's people and others, as Paul prays, should also be our desire to see people journey with Jesus to the end, not just here and now, but those people who haven't even started the journey yet. That is what this love is that Paul refers to. It is a love that will hold us until the end. You know, Paul's letter, it's not simply wanting to show us his longing for the church, that he was forced to leave, but how faith, hope and love are essential to being a Christian. So if you are here and you are exploring Christianity, 
I'm not going to lie, I'll do what Paul does and say, the reality of being a Christian is it's hard. Persecution is real. But please don't grasp onto that alone, for there is something greater still. There is the faith, hope and love that comes from God. Faith that Jesus did die on the cross for your sins and brings you back to God and actually will fill the, view, fill the void sorry, of your own personal absence for your relationship with your Father. There is hope that Jesus will actually return, as he says he will, just as he has fulfilled every other promise to us. And an assurance that your journey here and now is not in vain. And there is love. That you know that the God of the universe loved you first, more than you deserve or can comprehend, and that this love is so life-changing that by the Spirit's work, you will be able to freely and willingly love others because you have first been loved first. Friends, that absence that you have felt in your life is met in Jesus. And for those of you who are on the journey already, can I ask you, how does hope frame your vision of the future? Are you looking and longing for the return of Christ? Do you allow hope to give you clarity, clarity in the midst of difficult times, knowing that Jesus will return? Does your love overflow for his people and others? Or do you withhold it from some because of un some unresolved hurt or grief? Do you share it with people who don't even know Jesus yet? The people outside of here who need to know the love of Christ just as much as we do. The love of God doesn't make distinctions, and nor should we. We should pray that God would fill our hearts so that they overflow with love for his people and for others. Now, I didn't play the, the, the clip of Queen Elizabeth for nothing. I won't lie, I was a bit of a fan of the Queen, kind of sad when she died, lived a good old age. But there's also something comforting in knowing that she was a believer. And there's something that makes me wonder about those words she said at the end. That we will meet again. You see, in those, in those words, much like Paul's, there was a knowledge and understanding of hope. I think there was a knowledge and understanding of love. And how the world needs hope and love. See, really, she was latching on to what Paul had said already. Paul had told the church in Thessalonica that they needed to hold on to their faith, hope and love. Faith, hope and love that would help them to hold on to Christ and to endure in this life. Friends, why don't we pray? Lord God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith 
to believe the words of Jesus, who is the resurrection of the life, to trust in you. Lord God, please grow our hope that we would live as people who know that the best is yet to come because you will return. Help us long for that day. And Lord, please overwhelm us with your love so that we would generously and willingly love as you have first loved us. Lord God, we thank you that in Christ alone we find our hope, we know love and have faith. In Jesus' name, amen.